Welcome to our exchanges at Goldman Sachs Markets Update for Friday, July 24th. Each week, we check in with a leader across the firm to get a quick take on what they're watching in the markets. I'm Jake Siebert, Global Head of Corporate Communications here at the firm. And my guest today is Jose Manuel Barroso, Chairman of Goldman Sachs International. We'll be talking about Europe and the huge stimulus package that was just agreed upon in the meetings over there. Welcome, Jose. It's a pleasure. So let's start with the basics. This week, the EU struck what's truly historic stimulus package agreement. What are the key provisions of this package? What are they aiming to do? I I think it's really a very ambitious and significant decision. Uh, Basically, there are two elements there. It's what they call next generation European Union. It's a recovery fund specifically targeting the pandemic, the COVID, but it was linked with the multi-annual budget, what in Europe they call the multi-financial framework. It's a seven years budget. And so the conditions for this plan have to be linked with the conditions for the overall budget for the seven years. So the specific recovery plan, it's 750 billion euros, and the budget for the seven-year period is 1.82 trillion euros. So altogether, that makes more than 2.1 trillion US dollars. So it's really ambitious, and I think it combines the need to act now as a response to the COVID crisis with a more, let's say, medium-term perspective. It's very important to note that of these 750 billion euros, 390 will be through grants. The rest will be loans. Grants, so transfers, let's be honest, we are not yet in the so-called fiscal unit, but this is a step. Some of the red lines are being broken. And one of the most important points for me in terms of another taboo that is broken is the idea of a joint debt. In fact, uh, the conclusions are clear. The European Commission is going to borrow these 750 billion euros on the capital markets on behalf of the Union. And this is going to, the repayment will be until 2058. So uh, we never had anything comparable at European Union level such a joint issuance of debt by the European Union as such, not by the member states, and the European Commission acting on behalf of the European Union. So indeed, a very important and ambitious decision. Uh, It's not yet complete. Now, it has to be approved by by the European Parliament, but I think that will basically be be approved. And another point I'd like to underline is that all these uh, Subventions and all these transfers, they have to respect the conditionality of the programs, including what it's called the European Green Deal. So mainly measures related to climate action, climate protection, and the digital revolution, and also what they call resilience. So uh, in fact, it's a very significant program, a fiscal stimulus that of course has to consider adding to other measures that were already announced by the European Union, 540 billion euros recently that were announced. Some of them were loans from the European Investment Bank. Some was, of course, possible loans from the European Stability Mechanism. And others are transfers made by the European Commission for a program to fight unemployment. So I think it's a robust program indeed. And in some ways, it can be transformational. So outside observers are often skeptical uh, about the ability of the Europeans to agree on fiscal stimulus, given the divide between the 
the countries that are considered a little more thrifty or frugal and those that are considered bigger spenders. Was this an expected outcome of the conversations? Uh, look, in fact, I was expecting this outcome, to be frank. And in fact, our teams that are covering this more directly at Goldman Sachs, they have said it was going to be very close to the initial proposal of the commission because uh, that commission proposal was, in fact, supported clearly by France and Germany. And that makes a difference with the past because this time, Germany was not with the so-called frugal countries, to be more precise, with the Netherlands, Austria, Denmark, and Sweden. And during the meeting there, Finland was also sometimes joining these more, let's say, restrictive countries in terms of spending. Angela Merkel, I think she wants to leave a strong legacy. She was clearly on the side of pushing for a more ambitious budget. And, you know, I, I was president of the European Commission for two mandates for 10 years. I remember well, I was negotiating the last budget, the budget that is still in place today between 2014 to 2020. And I can tell you, these are the most difficult ever negotiations in the European Union. It's about money and about power. By the way, this time, an important difference was Britain is no longer there. So that explains why this time it was not exactly the initial proposal of the commission that was approved. No. In fact, uh, initially, there were more commitments in terms of grants and less in terms of loans. So the frugal countries, they obtained uh, this concession, less grants and more loans. So the composition of the expenditure is different. And also they got some additional rebates, what they pay, generally speaking, to the budget. But that's the way the European Union is. And I want to, I'd like to explain this for those less familiar with the European Union, because to be frank, it's not only outside Europe, also in Europe, it's extremely difficult to understand the European Union. It's very difficult to read. The European Union, by definition, is a compromise thing. It's always incremental, you know. It's, uh, it's about 27 countries with very different, let's say, um, economic and financial cultures. And the differences are not just, let's say, between the Netherlands and Greece. Sometimes, and I know that from my own experience, it's, it's not the difference between Germany and France. They have different financial cultures. But when France and Germany are together, and we saw this once again, and supported by European institutions, in this case, the European Commission, but also, let's also not forget, European Central Bank. European Central Bank has been pushing for a more, let's say, fiscal activism to complement its uh, monetary activism. When those countries, the core countries, are aligned with European institutions, most likely we will see results. And I think that explains why this time the skeptics were not right. So for those familiar with the U.S. system where there's a, a strong federalism since, since uh, Alexander Hamilton's day, explain the differences in approach. Yeah, I mean, you alluded to the complexity of different countries with national budgets and the like, but explain how the fiscal stimulus differs from the U.S. approach to fiscal stimulus. Oh, in many ways. First of all, let's be frank and all open about this. The European Union is not a federal state. There are some federalist elements in Europe, like uh, the independence of the European Commission, the independence of the European Central Bank, the independence and supranational nature also of the European Court of Justice. And we have also a directly elected European Parliament, but it's not a federation, the European Union. And if you want my opinion, it will not be, 
in the foreseeable future, something in between a federal state and, uh, let's say, a typical international organization. But it's not just an international organization. There are elements of supranationality. But to give an example, the European Union budget, the budget that is, in fact, managed by the European Commission on behalf of the European Union, is around 1% of the GDP of the GDP of the of the European countries. So <laughs> nothing comparable with the United States. But this time, there were much more important commitments. There is also another important difference as to be as to do with the, the let's say the economic and social model because of the automatic stabilizers. As you know, for instance, uh, we can say that in the US that automatic stabilizers, at least for this year, we estimate them at 2.7 percent uh, uh, of GDP. In, in Euro area, it's 5.7. I mean, in countries like Italy, it's 7.4. Uh, uh, in France, 5.9. So this comparing with 2.7 in the United States. So the automatic stabilizers in Europe are much stronger. And so expenditure, it's very difficult to compare, in fact, the stimulus on the United States uh, and Europe because also of the different, let's say, economic social model, the role of this welfare state, and so on. But uh, certainly, whatever measure you take, you can agree, I think we should agree, that this time the Europeans made some steps further. As I always say, the European Union, by the way, it was said that by, by the founding fathers of the European Union after the Second World War, when European Union or European community was created, it's a step-by-step -step construct. But this time, it was a bigger step. Because we have a crisis, and crisis, I think, from also from my own experience, it's only when we have a crisis that leaders are ready to make a bigger step. And this time it was a bigger step, but it's not yet the Hamilton moment or the Philadelphia moment. We are not yet there, and I think we should also be cautious about uh, when we say historic and so on. I mean, today there is a, a great trivialization uh, and sometimes abuse of the word Historic, but certainly is a very strong and important uh, progress. What uh, happened just now? Yeah, no. I mean, people get caught up in these headline numbers and forget that the United States unemployment insurance is is relatively small compared to uh, Europe, and and so the headline numbers shouldn't map across one to one. What's been the response by markets so far? Obviously, we've seen some movement on the currency. How how are investors reacting to this announcement? Oh, and the financial markets have responded favorably to this recovery fund agreement with higher European equity prices, a stronger euro, lower sovereign bond spreads. But in fact, much of this market reaction already occurred in the run-up to the summit, starting with the release of the Franco-German proposal and also the release of the European Commission project. So the market response to the news of the agreement was similar now when there was breaking news. They were similar in spirit, but indeed smaller because the agreement had already been expected. That's reality. But if I may say, but if you now make a little bit of go, go back, you remember that some weeks or months before, uh, market sentiment to a large extent was about a possible sovereign debt crisis, including, by the way, denomination risks uh, in Italy and so on, I think now these fears are certainly not uh, top of mind. Uh, we should avoid any form of complacency, certainly, but I think today we are, at, in European terms, in a much better place than we were, let's say, just one or two or three months ago. Okay, so you, you've alluded to sort of where this stands in the history of the EU and its unity. In the wake of the global financial crisis, obviously, there were grave doubts about the future of the EU as, as a governing entity, partly because of its inability 
to respond forcefully on the fiscal side. So what does this framework and this agreement say about the future of Europe and, and its path towards a more perfect union? Yeah, you know, uh, once again, I think there are two mistakes we should avoid when we make an assessment about European Union. One is to bet on disintegration, as it was happening during the financial crisis. At that time, I was president of the European Commission, I can tell you. I remember well going to the G20, uh, speaking with President Obama and the Chinese and the Japanese and all the others, and that was their question. Do you think the euro is going to survive? Is Greece going to leave the, the, the euro? At that time, the market sentiment, including the, some of the best uh, economists, some of Nobel Prize of economy was, Greece, it's impossible. Greece will leave the euro. But Greece is still in the euro, and uh, the euro is there. And the euro, in fact, is the second global currency after the, after the dollar. So I really believe that the, the resilience of the European Union and of the euro is higher than most analysts or commentators uh, acknowledge. Now, having said that, we are also not going to have the, the federalization, the United States of Europe in foreseeable future. So it is something in between, incremental, fragmented, sometimes muddling through, sometimes extremely frustrating, time-consuming, political capital-consuming. That's the way it is. But probably it is the only way when you have 27 governments with uh, different histories, uh, different uh, uh, cultures. But we have to think counterfactually. Would it be better if there was not a union? Or if there were, I really believe that would not be the case. So my guess is this is a moment, a very critical moment for Europe and for the world, in fact, with this pandemic. I think, as we have seen during the last financial crisis, at the end of the day, it took a lot of time. But look, the euro did not crumble. And now we have in Europe more, more instruments than we had before the crisis. For instance, European stability mechanism, the kind of European IMF. I mean, it would not be possible before the beginning, not yet completed, unfortunately, the beginning of the banking union. So my point is the following. Sometimes we need a crisis to make progress. In fact, one of the so-called founding fathers of the European community, uh, Jean Monnet, a Frenchman, he said, Europe is going to be made through crisis and there's successive responses to successive crises. I'm afraid he's right, uh, or he was right. And so, and that's what is happening. So I continue to think my scenario is there will be progress, but it will still be incremental. But in times of crisis, most likely we'll see some further important steps. And I think we are in this uh, moment, in that situation, also because of the global geopolitical situation, where now Europe is assuming itself more, I would say, is um, leaving some political naivete or innocence, is becoming more aware of the need to think geopolitically. And I think this is a, a trend, but okay, let's see, uh, accidents may happen and there, there will be probably contradictory developments, but I continue to be confident in the process of European integration. Thank you. That, that last point is particularly important with leadership lacking uh, in other parts of the world. Jose, thank you so much for joining us today. It's my pleasure. Thank you very much. That's all for this week's Markets Update on Exchanges to Goldman Sachs. In case you missed it, check out our other episode this week with Mike Siegel on the 2020 insurance report, which dives into how CIOs are allocating capital in today's turbulent markets. This podcast was recorded on Wednesday, July 22nd in the year 2020. Thanks for listening and hope everyone has a safe and pleasant weekend. 
All price references and market forecasts correspond to the date of this recording. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute research or a recommendation from any Goldman Sachs entity to the listener. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast, and any liability, therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Goldman Sachs, and Goldman Sachs is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast. In addition, the receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by Goldman Sachs to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any Goldman Sachs entity.